As we jump in this morning, a couple months ago, as I prepared for this message, I decided that I would share something uh, very personal that connects directly with what we're going to talk about today. This will be new information for many of you. Others are aware. But in 2010, our family moved from the Chicago area to the Wichita area, and a big part of the, of the reason behind that move, it was deeply personal and it was deeply painful. And what it boiled down to was that someone had chosen to say something behind my back uh, in the role that I was at in the church I was at in the Chicago area uh, that ultimately sabotaged my role there. And I didn't know who it was or what it exactly was said, but the end result was that I was let go. And uh, this experience was brutal. Our sons at that point were in middle and high school at that point, and the move to Chicago had been very challenging, especially for our teenage sons. And then to have less than a year go by and to have my entire role come crashing down, uh, living in limbo for about six months as we just tried to get our mind around it and dealing with uncertainty and confusion and, God, what's happening? Why would you let this happen? And it was just a very difficult season. Uh, but honestly, our, our, our move to Wichita was to be an indefinite but a, a temporary move. And ultimately, we had moved here to just live closer to part of our family and to just, for me, to take a break from ministry while we just kind of got our bearings again, as well as to give our sons some semblance of stability. And then about two years later, I got a phone call, an unexpected call. And on the other end was a man who I, I at one time had considered not only my best friend, but the closest friend that I'd ever had in my entire life, and he was struggling to talk. And when he was finally able, he told me that he had called to confess. He had called to confess that he was the one that intentionally sabotaged me three years earlier. Uh, and with struggle, he told me that he had been in a very dark place, that he'd been struggling with some demons he had been battling at the time, and which included a secret addiction to prescription painkillers. And the bottom line was that he, had, he felt jealous about the position that I had gotten, and he intentionally cost me my job. And he said, I know there's no way that you can forgive me for how I hurt you or Shauna or your boys. I just want you to know that what I did was horrible, and I know that it's unforgivable, and yet I hope the day will come that you can forgive me. And I sat there stunned as I listened to him, and what came rushing back into my mind was all of the grief and the pain and the confusion that my wife and my sons and I had experienced, the embarrassment as a man, the financial loss. And as he talked, the knowing that he had taken from me and my wife and my children something that quite honestly could never be repaid. And for what? Now, I want to push pause on my story because I want to ask you to do something that might seem a little unusual, but if you trust me, there's a point to this. Uh, but I want to ask you to bring to mind a memory. At some point in your past, someone chose to do or say something that hurt you deeply. Maybe it was a one-time experience. Maybe it was repeatedly. It was likely someone close to you, but it might have been a stranger. Someone hurt you. They hurt you financially. They hurt you mentally. They hurt you verbally, relationally. Maybe it was physically. Maybe it was a mix of those. And as a result, they, they took something from you. They stole something from you. Again, it may have been materially or financially, but most likely it was mentally or relationally or, or even physically. And as a result, maybe they stole your sense of self-worth. 
Or they robbed you of the opportunity for you or your children to grow up with both parents in the home. Maybe they robbed you of your childhood or robbed you of your adolescence. They robbed you of your first marriage. They stole from you financially or they robbed you of a career or educational opportunity. Maybe they stole your sense of security. Maybe they stole your sense of innocence. Maybe they stole a sense of control over your own body and they violated you in a way you wish you wish you could forget. And you now have to live with the emotional and physical aftermath of that. You struggle to trust. You struggle to be fully vulnerable. And again, all of us at some point, we've had someone make a selfish or a harmful choice when it came to us, and as a result, they owe us something that can never be repaid, can it? And there exists another uncomfortable truth, that there are other people who, if, if they were here, if they were listening to me right now, and they heard me ask uh, for them to bring someone to mind who had hurt them or harmed them, maybe verbally, maybe mentally, maybe relationally or physically, took something from them that can never really be repaid, your face, my face, would be the one to come to mind. And we owe them something that can never be repaid. Because all of us eventually, we do something, we say something, we treat someone a certain way, we relate to them in an unhealthy or dysfunctional way in a single moment or over a period of time that in the end we hurt them and we take something from them, maybe tangibly, but for sure always something intangible. And what that ends up creating is it creates a debt-debtor relationship in which we owe them or we feel this deep sense of they owe us. In fact, you've thought it or you've said it. You owe me. You owe me an apology. You owe me my childhood back. You owe me my first marriage back. You owe me my sense of self-worth, my sense of peace, my sense of security that you took from me. You owe me. But again, the problem we all face is it's a debt that can never fully be repaid. Now here's why. Here's why this matters for our discussion today. Because even if you're agnostic or you're not sure about the Bible or any of this, no matter where you land with any of that, It means that we understand God better than we think. It means you and I understand broken relationship better than we think. It means we understand and actually agree with the dynamics of the word sin more than we think because we all know what it's like to be sinned against. Sin simply being an archery term to miss the mark. And all of us have had someone relationally miss the mark with us. And we have missed the mark with others. And we understand this invisible, intangible sense of a debt-debtor relationship in which a debt is owed, but it cannot be truly repaid. And here's why this so matters to our conversation today. We are in this series in which we have shrunk the Bible down to one word. And that word is redemption. That the Bible, in Latin, to Biblia, simply means the books. Even though it was written over a period of 2,000 years by over 40 different authors, three different continents, three different languages, it all together tells one story, a story of redemption. And in this series, we began with Adam, and we looked at how Adam made a decision that derailed his life and his potential, and ultimately how one bad decision not just affected him, but it affected all of us and every generation, the consequences that they would face, every generation that followed. And most of us have discovered in our own lives that our dumb decisions never just hurt us, do they? It hurts the people around us, and many times we make decisions that the generations that follow us will be impacted by because all of us have experienced generational blessing 
And we've all experienced generational harm and dysfunction because of the family members that came before us. And with his decision to break the one rule that God gave him, he was, that God had given, he betrayed God. He acted in distrust and disrespect and defiance. And as a result, a relationship was broken. A debt-debtor relationship was established, a debt that was intangible and could simply not be repaid. At least there was nothing Adam could offer. There's nothing we can offer that could fully repay or satisfy that debt, just like we experience when it comes to our relationship with others. But as we said from the beginning of this series, that this gathering of documents document for us God's pursuit, His mission, His promise to reestablish a relationship and to offer us a hope and a future. And last week we talked about the end of the kingdom of Israel and Judah. And after the prophet Malachi, there's, it's, as if God were, it's as if God were silent for 400 years. No messengers, no prophets, no special kings. Nothing for 400 years. And they began to wonder what we would wonder. Has God abandoned us? Has God forgotten about us? Does he care anymore? Does he remember us? And then what we celebrate in six weeks in the quietness of a stable in a little town called Bethlehem, from an insignificant Jewish girl, God allowed a baby to be born. And God said for them to name the baby Yeshua, which in Hebrew is a derivative of the word that means to rescue, to deliver, salvation. Or in Latin and English, Jesus, the Lord saves. Though for another 30 years, the nation still had no idea that God was up to anything. And as this child was growing and developing and preparing his life to the moment where God could finally use him in a big and extraordinary public way, the voice that they hear before Jesus comes on the scene is a man that they call John the Baptizer. And he was rough and wild in appearance. He essentially pops onto the scene and he's saying, listen up, listen up. All that God has promised, beginning with Abraham, or with Adam, and then Abraham, and then Moses, and then David, and the king, and the kingdom that God has been talking about all through the generations, it is here, it is at the door. And then one day Jesus, he's coming to where John the Baptist, he's speaking by the river, by the Jordan River, and baptizing, and, and John saw Jesus coming, and he points, and the entire crowd looks to where he's pointing, and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this statement takes us all the way back to Adam and Eve in which their sin required sacrifice to provide them coverings for their nakedness. And it takes us back to Moses and the Passover and the lamb that was to be killed and eaten that fateful night. But some of the blood was to be placed above and on the door frames of the house to base, so that the death angel would pass over the house. It was a statement that, God, we trust you. In the long history of the nation, the sacrifice of a lamb was symbolic as payment to cover their sins. But John is saying, no, here is the final payment, the promised lamb, promised to Adam, promised to Abraham, promised to Moses and David, who won't just cover sin, that he will somehow, as a final, once and for all sacrifice for sin, that he will somehow take it off of us, that he will remove it. He will take it upon himself, and he will take it away once and for all. And that somehow supernaturally it will make payment and pay our debt, a debt that we could never repay without him. That the debt-debtor relationship between mankind and God was reconciled through his sacrifice. That we 
will be offered redemption once and for all. And soon after, Yeshua, Jesus, he begins to gather followers. He singles out 12 of them. They later become known as the apostles. And then 12, uh, Jesus and his 12, they travel all around the area that we know as Israel today, the Holy Land. And as he does that, he focuses on two primary things, teaching and signs. He teaches a lot. He also performs a lot of miracles. And those two aspects of his public ministry were so important because of the message that he was trying to bring. And it, it was so contrary to their real life and their religious experience up to that point. And Jesus knew that they needed to know exactly who he was. That Jesus was not just another man. He was not just another prophet from God. But that he was, in fact, the Son of God. God in a bod. God in flesh. And he said crazy things like, if you want to be a leader, you need to be a servant. He said things like, whoever wants to be first among you must be last. He said things like, wherever you put your money, your heart is going to follow. He said, you will be much more blessed to give than receive. And all these things he said over and over again, and they were just so countercultural to their everyday experience and to what they've been taught all of their lives, just like us. But then lastly, he said the most important thing of all. He said that the kingdom of God is, that I have come to establish, I am going to be the king, but the path to my throne is not the normal path of any other king. Mine is going to be through my death. I have come to offer myself as payment for you. Because from day one, the Apostle John would later summarize in his letter documenting the life and the signs of Jesus. He wrote, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, which is what he had promised thousands and thousands of years before, immediately following the moment when the relationship between God and humanity was broken. And over and over again, Jesus would say these things to his disciples, but they just couldn't get their mind around it. And they assumed that their biggest problem was a political one, Rome. But what they couldn't see, it was deeper than that. It was a problem of the heart that had plagued all of humanity and their nation over and over and over again, which is why in their history they could only be faithful to God for about one generation, maybe two. And God had planned to take care of their biggest problem and yours and mine. Jesus said your biggest problem, the biggest barrier to God establishing his kingdom among you is sin. And from day one, the consequences of sin have been death. Sin kills things. And regardless of what you believe about God, as I said earlier, all of us have seen sin kill things. We have all seen sin kill someone's sense of self-worth, kill a relationship, kill someone's health, kill someone's financial future, kill, cost someone their life. And God had made it very clear in Genesis 2.17, you, you need to trust me. If you eat that fruit, you're going to die. He set up a very clear parallel between sin and death, and over and over and over again, Jesus said, I'm going to die, and that's how God is going to establish his kingdom and redeem humanity for those who will accept it. But it just never made sense to them. And finally, the day came, Jesus knew he was going to be killed, so he gathered his closest 12 together. It was during a time when Israel was celebrating the Passover, the picture of a spotless lamb being sacrificed for the nation. And Jesus gathers the 12 in the upper room so that he can give them a very clear physical illustration of what he's talking about. 
And if, if you have your Bibles, your Bible app, you'd like to follow along, this is Luke chapter 22. And in this passage, Jesus is doing his best to piece it all together, to connect all the pieces together of why he came and what he's about to do, to connect it all for them, from the promise of God when Adam was kicked out of the garden, to the foreshadowing of the Passover and lambs being sacrificed all those hundreds of years to show them that all of this was pointing to him and pointing to this moment in time, this brand new covenant and promise of God to those who would trust him. It's Luke chapter 2, verse 19, 22, verse 19. He, Jesus, took bread. He gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the cup, supper, he took the cup. And he said, this, is, this cup is the new covenant. Not in an animal's blood, but in my blood, which is poured out for you. The first covenant involved the blood of the lamb. This covenant is going to be established and paid for by my body and my blood. Not an animal's. And that night, he's arrested. All of these closest friends abandon him. And the next day, he is brutally tortured, beaten, and hung on a cruel Roman cross as the greatest injustice in the history of mankind. Now, every one of us could just easily say, you know, I've, I've done some wrong things in my life, but I'm not sure I deserve to die on a cross. And that's because we don't understand the magnitude of sin. And we underestimate, or we don't understand the depth of what was broken. Even though all of us can understand what it is to have a debt owed that we created that can never be fully repaid. Just like we also know what it's like to have our trust broken, our relationship broken, because of someone else, betrayal done to us that creates a debt that nothing in this world can ever pay for. And this gives us a glimpse of something so much bigger, the dynamic that exists between us and our relationship with God. I'll just illustrate it this way. Uh, you know, imagine you're in an archery contest. It's win-lose. The terms are simple. You, get, uh, you have the first three arrows in the bullseye. If you do, you win. If you don't, you're disqualified. It's simple. And let's say the first two arrows land right in the bullseye, but the third one you miss. Maybe by a millimeter, maybe by an inch, maybe you miss the target altogether. It does not matter. What's the result? You're disqualified. It doesn't matter how much you plead for a second chance. It doesn't matter if you shoot another 10, another 100, another 1,000. One after the other, right in the bullseye, you missed one. It doesn't matter by how much. You're disqualified. And there's nothing that you or I can give or do to change that reality. Now, why this is how it is with God, I don't know. There are a lot of realities in my life that I don't know the why. So, like, why is my body such that I cannot eat all the carrot cake, lasagna, and garlic mashed potatoes I want without it clogging my arteries and me gaining about 200 pounds? Why is it that I, there isn't just a pill that I can take that will make me fit and strong? Why do I have to get up to the gym all these mornings? Where do the missing socks go? I don't understand why the earth is traveling 67,000 miles an hour around the sun or all the details that makes it so I can pick up this device and call or message almost anyone in the world. And I don't know why this is the system that God has set up. 
But whether I understand why or not does not change the reality. And the reality is, all of us who are born, we're born with a sin nature that separates us from God. And in our mind, it's so extreme that it's somehow deserving of death. But it's there. And God sent Jesus, and Jesus did not deserve death, which is what qualified him and him alone to offer himself because he had no debt. So he was in a position to pay our debt. And he chose to give his life willingly as a sacrifice, as a payment. And he did so on the cross because Jesus knew that only God was in a position to make the payment that was necessary. See, what Jesus did on the cross was not just a moment in time. It was the culmination of the entire story. As Paul, the Apostle Paul writes later to Christians in Rome, he writes, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. It was God's plan all along to step in and to do something, to make payment for your sin and for mine, to pay a price that we could never, ever pay. And through this, establish a new, unbreakable covenant and promise, a new way of relating to and understanding God for all of humanity, for all of time. And if you're like me, again, we can't help but ask the question, why? Why, why this system? Why this way? And I will say that one intriguing explanation I heard from one theologian a long time ago was along these lines, that with Adam, there was no concept of life or a world where everything wasn't perfection. There was no concept of a world with pain or suffering or death. But after the fall, all of humanity has now had a taste of life without God, a taste of hell. And like something nearly all of us have said at least once in our lives, you don't know what you've got until it's gone. And most, if not all of us, we've experienced that. And suddenly we realize how incredibly grateful and happy and satisfied we should have been. And we look back and we think, oh, if I could go back, how I would do things differently. I never want to experience that again. And for us, we have the vantage point of living and experiencing a world governed by sin and selfishness, which makes us long for the day where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And unlike Adam, we have the vantage point of what it's like to live in a world with mourning and crying and pain, and the idea of ever returning that to that will be utterly repulsive. Why for a second would we do that? But to experience that new life, that future, requires a bridge, a death, a payment to pave the way for us to reconciliation with God. And that is why Jesus came. And God so loved the world that he made it very, very simple. It's not complicated. It's the same question posed to every person that we've talked about over the past weeks. It's the same question as it was to Adam and Abraham and Moses and David and Zedekiah and us. And the question is simply this from God, will you trust me? It's, it is so simple. And there's been no greater good news in the entire history of humanity than what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what we celebrate every weekend 
And it's the message of payment on our behalf that we could never have paid on our own, that the spotless lamb of all eternity was willing to give up and sacrifice his life as a sacrifice for our sin, who paid our debt to deal with that debt-debtor relationship with God. And all we have to do, all we can do, is simply trust him. Place our faith in and follow Jesus because the good news is about payment, not performance. So my big question for you today is, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Is that the foundation of how you relate to God? Or are you living in a treadmill relationship with God where you're just trying to do the best you can to keep up and to keep up and to be good and do good? And maybe if, if I just do good, like I know Jesus died for me, but if I keep doing good enough, maybe he'll forgive me and accept me. Maybe I'll, I'll make the cut. In the end, one, one of the things that I deeply grieve in my life is my grandfather on my mother's side. His name was Jerry. And, and in him, I experienced a man who was one of the most kind, gentle, patient, hospitable, generous. He would give anybody anything. He was one of the most Jesus-like men I've ever known in my life. His faith in God and in Jesus Christ, his beliefs were unwavering, and he lived a life of enduring faith and selfless love. And yet, towards the end of his life, in his 80s, he would tear up, and he would express that he wasn't so sure anymore that Jesus' payment for him was going to be enough. He wasn't sure if heaven lay in store for him. He, he, he feared he wouldn't make the cut because he felt like he hadn't been a good enough Christian. And this fear plagued him in the final years of his life. What if faith wasn't enough? What if what Jesus did on the cross wasn't enough? What if it really is at least a piece of it about performance? And, and as I was working on this, I, like, I was just curious for you, like, have any of you ever wrestled with that fear that I'm not a good enough Christian to make it? See, The thing is, when we do that, the problem is, is what we do is we take the significance and the power of the gospel and the payment of Jesus and we reduce it to nothing because we make it all about us. And if we have a good day, like I don't think I sinned today, or maybe it was like a little one, like today I'm in, and you have a bad day, you really stumble, today I'm out. And you're on this treadmill, this revolving door, this exhausting, performance-based relationship with God. And if that's you, here's what I want to say to you. That in those moments that you feel, you begin to feel that treadmill pull again. That in the quietness of your home or your heart or your office, your car, wherever you are, that you would just stop and say something, say out loud something like this. God, I acknowledge there is nothing I can do to earn your love. There's nothing I can do to earn your acceptance, nothing I can do to earn righteousness. I am trusting entirely in what Jesus has done for me. And I'll say, as I've talked with people about their faith and like why they believe that they're going to be accepted by God or go to heaven, the amazing thing is even people have been Christians for years, I'll begin to get an answer about like how they try to live and how they try to follow God, and that's just not the answer. It's it, what it, The answer is I am trusting entirely in what Jesus has done for me, 
Period. To say, God, you sent him for me. His body was broken for me. His blood was poured out for me because you love me. And that's enough. And I want to honor you with my life and glorify you, but not so that I can earn my way in, but because I am in. And because of your great love, I want nothing more than to honor you with my life. And when I fall short and when I fail, and I will, I know you still love me. That's the promise of God, to never leave you and never forsake you. And to just say thank you. And if you were somehow raised or somehow taught that Jesus' payment isn't completely good enough, that it's somehow up to you to be good enough, long enough, consistent enough, that God may love you, but he doesn't like you, I am so, so sorry because that is not the message of Jesus. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. People who have chosen to accept Jesus' payment because the question from day one, beginning with Adam, has always been God asking, will you just, will you trust me? I've given you an instruction or a boundary that makes no sense. It may seem odd at best, crazy at worst, like, okay, just, just don't eat from that tree. Leave your land and go to the land that I'm going to take you. Just put lamb's blood on the doorframe. Trust that I'm near when I feel utterly absent. Just trust me. Just believe. He's my son. Believe in my son. Put the weight of your life, the etern- your eternity, onto my son Jesus. Just trust me. And from the beginning, God has provided men and women opportunity after opportunity that was just so simple. And it just came down to this simple decision. Will I trust God? And if you're a Christian, it's not the treadmill. It's not one day you're in and the next day you're out, or I had a really bad day, I better drive home slow so I don't get killed, I get time to pray and get get in again. No, no, no. Once you've made the decision to offer and accept, or accept God's offer of payment by placing your faith in Jesus, it's not complicated and it's done. The Apostle Paul, writing to Christians and those considering Jesus in this pagan city of Rome, he boiled it down to this when he wrote this. He said, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that Jesus raised him from the dead, because that is the foundation of our faith, the event that brought us the Bible, it is what gives complete credibility to everything Jesus claimed and taught, that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and you're saved. For some of you, you know it's time, the time's come for you to close that deal. You need to simply say yes to God. To say, I've made, I'm a mess. (laughs) I've got junk in my life, some of which I'm sure I'm not even aware of, but I'm, God, I'm not coming to you based on anything I can do or say. I'm coming to you, God, through Jesus Christ. And as as I bring this home, I'll invite the band to come on up. As we close, I just want you to do business with God on that. Uh, The band's going to come up. They're going to sing this powerful song. And just in the quietness of your heart, your own heart, I just just want you to to ask you to seal or reseal this, this deal with God. Does it seem easy? It is.
It's so easy that anybody can do it. But please don't ever be deceived into thinking it was cheap. It took the greatest injustice in history to pave the way and build this bridge that we can choose to cross. So in the quietness of your mind as the band sings, you know, for some of you, again, you're, you're Christians. You'd say, I'm, I'm a Christian. You are. But it is time for you to take the load off yourself and give that back to God and quit trying to take it back from Him. And just leave it there. The weight of this, unnecessarily trying to work your way or just keep in His good grace. Because it's a gift. It's a promise. And once you accept it, it's yours forever. And for others of you, it's, it's time for you to just finally take that step and surrender your life, life to God and just say, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust what you've done and offer through Jesus Christ once and for all. And then you're in for good because it's based on his faithfulness and goodness and consistency, not yours. So the song has come to the altar. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was brought, bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today. There's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. On both sides, to my left and my right of the room, we've set up communion for you. The passage I read earlier, Luke chapter 22, verse 19. He, Jesus, took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. But the first covenant involved the blood of the lamb. This is in my body, my blood. And the sacrament of communion with God and Jesus began in that moment. Communion and uniting with this new covenant and new promise. And it's been handed down to us through the generations from that moment with Jesus into this moment. And the day after Jesus introduced this, he was brutally tortured and beaten and hung on a cruel cross as the greatest injustice. But he did it for you and he did it for me. Why? Because he loves you. And I believe some of you struggle to really believe that because you have a hard time loving yourself. He loves you, knowing more about you than you know about yourself. He loves you. If somebody will die for you, they are for you. So after the music begins, if, if you're someone, you put your faith in, in Jesus, then you're, when you're ready, you know, you've just had a moment in your heart and your mind to do business with God. Just go to one of the stations. You can take communion there. You can take it, go off to the side by yourself or with a friend or a family. You can take it back to your seat. And just, but whenever you're, you feel like your heart and mind is ready, just take communion as a reminder of the payment that was made for you, for me, and for all of mankind. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus and God every day I have to try and get my mind around your grace and we all do to some extent because it's like nothing we experience in this life unconditional love sacrificial love to, to that level nothing comes close it's, everything in our life is performance based so God I thank you 
And I pray that you would drill that into our heads. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in us to help us to not just intellectually think it and believe it, but God, that we just know it to the core of our gut, that you love us and that you're for us and we are precious to you. So Father, whoever today is hearing my voice especially, like they're they're just really struggling, I pray that you today would just set them free from that and that we would all just find joy and hope in the sacrifice, the payment that was made that settled everything, all of our debt through Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.